Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Good morning, everyone. Pastor Rodney here with The Ville Church. Just so thankful to be here with you on this Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, we provide this uh, online messages and, and teachings because we know that not everybody can make it out whether it's because of the pandemic or you know personal circumstances that they keep us from doing that we want to encourage you stay encouraged we do also want to invite you to come out to meet with us in person on uh, first and second sundays of the month on the third and fourth we do a prayer walk also in person through the neighborhood of brentwood it's a great time a fellowship getting together uh connecting with our community getting to know our community praying for the houses, praying for the people that are there, the ones that are out and about. And there's a lot of people that do come out and it's really nice. I think just our presence being there is, is one first step. And then of course, prayer. Prayer is what uh, is, is of most important whenever we are gonna minister anywhere. Uh, and also your heart just begins to love on those that are around you in the neighborhood and with, with the church one another. So come out and join us on the third and fourth Sunday for that prayer walk. Anytime we have a fifth Sunday in a month, we're gonna take that as a Sabbath. So just to let you know that, but uh, we're going to get into today's um, teaching. And so can I pray for us? Let's pray. Father, um, just thankful to be here uh, with those that are joining me online and to know that you will minister through this means as you do minister as we're, we're alone and we're being with you in our time of silence and solitude, or whether we're with one another uh, meeting together to hear the word in person or, or whether we're with just two or three in our squads or, or just with friends or family just talking about you and then you're with us all the time whether we're at work or whether we're out playing or whether we're exercising just never ending never never stopping being connected with you in a relationship with you this is just one of the ways we gather together as a church so i thank you lord uh, for those that are joining us and i pray that you will use my words to minister and what we have today about the resurrection very very important and foundational to what we believe without it we'd be nothing father so thank you for uh, this morning in jesus name amen so i want to talk a little bit about some information that i got from lee strobel lee strobel was a journalist and he was also an atheist what had happened is his wife had became a christian and she pretty much invited him to come to church and he was pretty much on a mission to discredit whether Jesus really was real, the resurrection, the, you know, the disciples and the account of his resurrection. And he did a full on investigation, just like any good journalist would do. And he took it uh, really, really far. He, he got with a, a lot of experts when it comes to, you know, the history uh, of, of what happened historically, um, not just what we find in the Bible, but outside the Bible as well, historians. Um, those that when it comes to the crucifixion, um, also on uh, the resurrection and, and, the, and the stories of the resurrection. And so you can find this um, uh, snapshot of this online on one of his YouTubes, or he does have a, a movie out. I believe it's um, The Case for Christ. And you can, you can see it anytime if you order his movie. And it's a great, great movie. It has a lot of information, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movie. It's a drama, and, and you'll see it play out. It's really awesome. But I wanted to go through, man, how do we know, or what is there to tell us that the resurrection really happened, right? It's something that happened 2,000 years ago. Of course, we have God's word that's inerrant. It's true, but 
But let's look at some other things as well. For example, we're going to look at the execution. Okay, In order for there to be a resurrection, it had to be a death, right? Jesus had to die. So there's no historical record anywhere that anyone has ever survived a Roman crucifixion. Now, I got this from Lee Strobel, so just so you know, all the credit goes to him. Um, first of all, the person that is crucified, they're flogged. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Passion uh, movie, The Passion of Christ, and, and you'll see on there where they reenacted this flogging. Well, it's said that that's not even close to the, ha the brutality that actually takes place. And so, I don't know, for me, it was one of those parts that was just even hard watching at that moment. If you haven't seen it, it's a great, great movie to watch. Um, eyewitnesses to the flogging says that the veins and muscles and tendons would lay bare. That's how bad the flogging was. And the medical experts say that Jesus was in uh, hypobolemic uh, shock because of the loss of blood. And that's what caused him not being able to carry his cross during that time. So the flogging is pre, it's before they nail him to the cross. Then they go ahead and they take and nail Jesus to the cross through his wrists and through his ankles. And they set him on a cross to where um, they're able to hang there, basically. And as they're hanging, there's pressure on the chest, which causes someone not to be able to breathe unless they push up, which is now dragging their bare back on the wood to be able to grasp or gasp for air to take a breath. And then they sag back down um, and they do that every time they need to take a breath. Obviously, after a long time, they just don't have the strength or the ability to endure the pain of what they're going through, and they die by, um, by suffocation. And um, that obviously is, is obvious, and there has never been any sources that anyone's ever, again, ever survived a Roman crucifixion ever in all time, and all, you know, besides Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Now, finally, you can't take the pain, you're exhausted, you're dying of suffocation. But if that wasn't enough, they actually took a spear and jammed it um, in between Jesus' ribs, through his lungs, into his heart. And he was declared dead by multiple experts that have ever studied his death. So, Jesus died. That's the first thing. Uh, can't have resurrection without the death. And then there are five ancient sources outside of the Bible that report Jesus' death. Um, even an atheist scholar by the name of Gerard Luterman of Vanderbilt uh, University says that Jesus' death by crucifixion is, and this is, quote, indisputable. So here's an atheist that is studying Scripture, a New Testament scholar that's an atheist, does not believe in Christ, actually says something that it's indisputable that he had died by crucifixion. So not alone that Jesus existed, he did walk this earth, but that he did die by crucifixion, indisputable by an atheist, someone that be opposing, be opposite to the to our faith. Now, one of the oppositions to the resurrection is that it's just a legend, right? Some people say, well, no, it's just a legend. Um, but the thing when it comes to legends, um, it takes uh, at least two one to two generations for a legend to be made up. And a legend is basically something that is just, you know, like a fairy tale. And um, so it takes one to two generations. While 
when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, um, this information of him raising from the dead had been developed and spread out really immediately, but uh, on paper from one to three years. It started with the creed that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Now, Paul is writing from his talk that he had with the disciples and their account to him, them seeing him resurrected. So we don't have this story that starts one to 2,000 years later or, or one to two generations later, excuse me. We actually have this story starting and with historical evidence right away. So it being a legend is thrown out because of that. Now, um, the other opposition is, okay, so they know that he died and some say he resurrected. Now, what about the tomb? Uh, the tomb was empty, right? So first of all, the tomb was empty, but it was guarded and sealed by a stone in front of it. So whenever they place someone in a tomb, especially Jesus, um, they take an account, especially the Romans, that they guarded it because they didn't want anyone to say that Jesus was not in there. Um, so there's one factor called the Jerusalem factor. The Jerusalem factor um, by William Land Craig says, if the whole Christian movement was based on the resurrection, it would have been very unlikely that in the very same town where the Christians and non-Christians were there, Jesus would have been buried. So in other words, if they were going to make up this whole faith and this whole belief about Jesus raising from the dead, why would they bury him and have an empty tomb in the same town? They would have done this somewhere else. So that way no one could actually see because people knew Jesus in that town. They, they, they had seen him at the marketplace. They had seen him at the temple. They had seen him um, in, in, in Samaria, in Jerusalem. Uh, they had seen him throughout all that area. And he had ministered to, to thousands upon thousands upon thousands. He was very, very famous in that sense for um, his ministry. So if they were going to plan his death and have him buried somewhere to say that he rose from the dead, they wouldn't have done it where he was most popular because people would say, yeah, I just saw him the other day. Of course he he rose from the dead. Um, so that's called the Jerusalem factor. So nobody trying to plan this out would do that. The second one is the centurion, um, I'm sorry, the criterion of embarrass embarrassment, the criterion of embarrassment. Um, so if you were going to write about something, you would make something up. It would embarrass you um, to say the truth about a fact. For example, in the Gospels, it is written that it said that whenever the first people that saw Jesus resurrected was women. Now, in those times, um, unfortunately and very sad, the women testimony was basically non-existent. When it came to court, when it came to situations that happened, they never ever regarded them as being a, an eyewitness. Basically, their eyewitness did not account. Now, if you are in this um, Roman, um, you know, time where, you know, the custom was that the testimony of a woman was considered not to be credible, then why would you write down and say that the very first people that Jesus resurrected and appeared to would be women? That's what you call uh, the criterion of embarrassment. In other words, someone, a journalist and a writer would never write something that would cause someone to not have credibility. They would rather lie about that or keep it out. 
But because this happened, they wrote it. And it's because it's the truth. In fact, they're not allowed to appear as witnesses in court and in law back then. Now, if they were going to make that up, they would have just said it didn't happen. Or they would have said that they appeared to James and John and one of the disciples. So that's another reason to be able to back up that Jesus did raise, rose, rise from the dead. Um, and then there's another one, enemy attestation. So whenever um, your enemy and you're trying to prove something that, that happened to your and your enemies involved, usually um, having them speak on his behalf uh, would not be good. But we find that from sources outside of the New Testament said that the body was stolen. So we find that Jesus resurrected and even his enemies that were trying to prove that he did not resurrect attested to that his body was stolen, saying that the tomb is empty. And that's real important for them to realize that the or, or to admit that the tomb was empty. Then there's a possibility that he could have resurrected. So but all they had to say is that uh, go to the tomb if they wanted to say go to the tomb. There's Jesus body. But no, they attest and um, ad admitting that the tomb was empty and they stole the body. So you have people saying that the tomb is empty. You also have those in opposition saying that the tomb is empty. And then you have which are the enemies and then uh, the are the enemies of, of belief in, in that Jesus resurrected. And then you have the disciples that do not have the means, nor did they have the opportunity to steal the body. So there's no way they could have done it. They're also saying that the tomb was empty. And that he resurrected now the last part is eyewitnesses so we know that jesus died undoubtedly we also know that the tomb was empty undoubtedly now what about did he resurrect eyewitnesses jesus appears over 12 different times to more than 500 different people to doubters to skeptics to believers to unbelievers indoors outdoors groups and individuals 500 now, in order to confirm an ancient writing, we need to have two sources for it to be considered true. We have no less than nine sources inside the New Testament and outside the New Testament total. Nine sources. Now, the atheist uh, Ger Luderman, the one that we referred to before, New Testament scholar, said this, and I quote, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences that Jesus' death in which Jesus had appeared to them as the risen Christ. So here's this atheist saying it's undeniable, again, um, undisputable, that uh, they had an experience of Jesus' resurrection, the disciples, after his death. Now, you may be asking, well, wait a minute, this is the atheist. Why is he still an atheist and he believes this? Well, the reason why is he attributes their experience as a hallucination. So Lee Strobel at this point takes that information that Gary Luderman gives and brings it to the leading uh, president over psychology um, and that has been studying psychology for years and years and that's a professor and lays the attestment of what the disciples had seen um, meaning their experience of seeing Jesus, and asked him, what about it being a hallucination? Is it possible that they just had a vision or hallucination? He said, 
It is impossible because solutions happen in individual minds. They don't happen all together at once. Um, in other words, if I'm having a hallucination, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a hallucination of the very same thing in the same moment about the very same thing with the same person. But let's continue to have the same thing happen to 500 people in more is more of a miracle, he said, than the resurrection itself. So it's completely impossible for it to be a hallucination. A hallucination. Now, what does that leave us with? There's only one possible explanation uh, for Jesus knowing that he did die 100%, that the tomb was empty 100%, is that he did raise from the dead. Why is that important to us? Why does that matter when it comes to uh, Resurrection Day, right? Why are we celebrating that? While sin's ultimate effect on humankind is separation from God, and second, an unquenchable desire for more. The first part is, is, is the hardest, right? Being separate from the one that made you, the one that created you. Being separate from the one that loves you with all his heart. The being separate from the one that is your father. Being separate from the one where you're ultimately complete and safe. Sin causes that spiritual death, that spiritual separation, like something isn't right here. We were connected, we were in union, we had intimacy and relationship, but now there's something that separates us. In that separation, that sin causes a desire for more sin. And it's unquenchable. You can never sin enough. So, which destroys those that are around us. So it just doesn't destroy this relationship with God and get it between us and God, but it also destroys community, destroys families and relationships. Loving one another as our neighbor, it destroys that, it breaks it down. Let me just take one sin, for example, sin that most people say it's not a big deal, right? Let's just take lying, just an example. Most people think of that as not a major sin. Well, first off, if you lie about something, the only thing you can do to be able to keep up with that lie is to lie some more. So there's the unstoppable, unquenchable, it just continues. You have to lie more and more in order for that lie that you started with to stay alive. It never stops. Now, what we're doing when we do lie to someone is we're degrading them. We are minimizing them to uh, not being able to have the dignity of the truth. We take away their dignity. They're not important enough, they're not valuable enough to be able to, for us to tell them the truth about whatever situation it is, whatever you're talking about. We defraud the person and we're withholding information from another image bearer of Christ. So in other words, they are made in God's image, they're a human made in God's image. And so therefore they have the dignity of receiving the truth, but we keep it from them. This is dehumanizing at its core. Now, let's just think about for it as a society, if everyone and everything was backed by some kind of lie. For example, a contract um, that is built on falsehood. No one would ever keep their word. Um, the house that you bought, you signed papers. There was a title search on it. They worked on making sure it was clear and that is gonna be in your name now. But behind the scenes, the title wasn't clear it wasn't true, and there's a lien on it. And as a matter of fact, maybe there isn't even any title at all, and it's all fluff. So you're paying on this house 20, 30 years later, 
you want to pass it on to your kids, you're on your deathbed, they do the side title search, and guess what? It's not even your house. It belongs to someone else. How would that affect by, by not, uh, by withholding information and by lying about that document? How about your degree? You know, you went to college, you went to a, 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 a university, you graduated, you get your degree, it says you have your associates, or your bachelor's or your master's, or your doctor's degree, uh, and it's there on the wall. And, you know, you go for a job and they ask for a copy of it. They do the research and they find out that the university is not credited. They said they were credited, but they failed in certain areas and they knew that giving you your associates and your bachelor's. And so now your uh, degree is no longer valid. What would that be like? How about life insurance policy? You've been paying on it all your life. And obviously you want to cash it out and your loved ones go and the life insurance policy was a farce. I mean, these are just, you know, little, not little, these are big things, um, but it can go with anything that if we were to lie about, it, if we were to withhold information, if we we're to not be truthful, how many things would fall apart in society? And that's what we're left with. The alternative to, and, and, and you know, one of the questions we have is about sin and why do we talk about sin and what, what, what God doesn't say is good to do and what he says is good to do and we don't do it. That's what sin is. Well, the reason why we talk about it and the reason why it's important to God is because it ultimately destroys that relationship with him and just relationship with others. It destroys community. It breaks down um, um, this relationship that we can have with one another. And there are societies that do basically function on a lot of falsehood. And, you know, there's a lot of falsehood here in, in America, but there's even more in other places where, you know, again, you can't trust anything at all, whether it's right or wrong or legal or true. Um, and it becomes difficult to function in that. It's destructive. Now, you could use this same example when it comes to all sin. For example, sexual sin, it destroys others and it's never quenched. It's always hurting yourself, your relationship with God, and that other person that you're having some kind of sexual sin with. Then it also can never be quenched. It leaves you wanting more. And what are you going to do there? You're going to continue to do to destroy more. Stealing, for example, it destroys and is never quenched. And what do you do with stealing? You're just going to steal more and more. Uh, what about hate? You know, how do you get out of hate? Or how are you going to get out of hate by having more hate? And the only way you can keep yourself hating is to hate even more. What does hate do? It destroys, right? It causes us to uh, get back, causes us to withhold, causes us to, to withdraw ourselves, to become cold in our hearts. Um, it, it separates us from, from others and separates us from God. Um, so I think you're starting to see why it's so important that sin is dealt with. Now, what about the worship of things, other things other than God? It destroys others because we will sacrifice whatever it is to get what we want to worship it. So we'll sacrifice relationships, people, time, our health, our minds, um, money, uh, materials. Um, uh, we'll sacrifice. And it's never quenched. Because whenever you're worshiping something else other than the one that can satisfy you, you just continue to sacrifice. You continue to labor for it. Whatever, what's, whatever that is, it could be power, control, it could be um, 
comfort, whatever it is. Now, what does that have to do with the resurrection? What does it have to do with the resurrection? What does this sin that Jesus died for have to have to do? Well, it's everything to do with resurrection. See, when sin came into the world, God was very clear that sin brought destruction, which is death. He said to Adam and Eve, he said, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. The only thing that could stop the penalty and the effect of that sin is death itself. So we see them eat, we see them the effect of sin, and we see how it carried out through mankind. And that's what we live in uh, and with every day. Sin affects every part of our lives. There's storms, there's earthquakes, there's disease, there's pestilence, there's um, there's uh, sin that we do, there's sin that, that's done against us, um, there's a sinful nature that we're born with, that we live with. Um, evidence of that is take children, let them free, and they will begin to fight with each other. So they're born with a sinful nature. We all know that. I think we beat that, or that, that horse way too long. But here it is. The only thing that could stop the penalty and the effect of sin is death itself. Not just any death, but the death of a righteous, perfect, holy, and clean person. See, death was brought by an unrighteous, by an imperfect, and by an unholy and an unclean person. That's what, what, what sin brought, right? The only way and the only one that can meet the criteria to defeat what the effect of sin that brought this death is Jesus. See, it was not that Jesus just had to die because he really wouldn't have to minister or live at all. He could have just been sacrificed all of a sudden it'd be over. But the effect of the sin that I just described above, which causes us to hurt others and causes an unquenchable desire for more, had to be defeated as well. In other words, someone had to be able to defeat the temptation and the sin itself. They had to live a life where they would not fall into that temptation and not carry out that temptation that brought about sin. The only one that was able to do that and did do that was Jesus. Jesus had to defeat this temptation. So the power of temptation would be defeated. And that's why the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. It says this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So we have someone that is Jesus that was perfect, but it says that he was tempted in all ways because he needed to defeat the power of that temptation, the power of that sin, so that way it was no longer our enemy, or it was no longer, uh, we we're no longer bound to the temptation, but we had an opportunity to be free and walk away from temptation. But it says he was tempted as we are, meaning in every way, other translation, in every way, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. There's no one on this earth that has ever claimed to walk and live without sin. Only Jesus ever has claimed that. Only our God has ever claimed to walk without sin. Um, now, last, he had to die as the penalty for the sin needed to be paid. So the penalty was death. Um, but he also had to be, um, beat, he had to beat death just like he beat temptation. So, because if Jesus died, but never resurrected, that means death was victorious over Jesus. That means death won. 
So it was important that um, he died. Of course, we would never want him to die, but he did die. And it's un undeniable. That was the penalty. That was what was needed to be paid for. But that means death would have won if he stayed in the grave. And that's why it's so important this day, Resurrection Day. See, uh, Jesus would have to die and then never live again for it to, to, um, to be victorious. But because the tomb is empty, he died and resurrected. Romans 6, 5 says this, Since we have been united with him in his death, we also have also be we will also be raised to life as he was. So we all are gonna die. There's not one person on this earth that's not gonna die. Death has no um, is not non-discriminative. It's coming after all of us. We don't know how long we have to live. The Bible says life is like a vapor, it's here one moment and gone the next. And compared to eternity, it's a very short time. And it's a guaranteed 100% that each one of us will pass. So then what? Well, Romans 6, 5 says, Since we have been united with him in his death. And how are we united? By faith. By faith, we are united with him in his death. And we will die physically. We will also be raised to life as he was. So there's 100% going to die. But the difference here is that 100% of those that have that faith in his death for us and in his resurrection will have life as he was. Will be resurrected life as he is. He was. The resurrection gives us hope. Hope for life after death. Hope for while we are still alive. So first off, this life is short. I don't want to just live this life and that's it. I want to live forever. As a matter of fact, Bible says that when you come to Christ and you're new in him, you're alive today and forever. Eternal life started the day that Christ came into your life. The day that he saved you. The day that he gave you a heart to, to believe and a mind to believe uh, that he died and rose from the dead. Now, but while we're still alive and while we're here, and when it comes to sin and the power of temptation to sin, it has been interrupted and we no longer are slaves to that power of that sin. So... Take it back just a little bit. Uh, I was 17 years old, and I remember the other day I was just thinking, um, one of my friends, we were at the high school, and he was dealing drugs, um, and they were doing some kind of like search throughout the school, and so he grabbed what he had, and he gave it to me to hide for him. And so basically, I had a large amount of, of um of cocaine that I know that if I would have gotten um, busted for it, I would have done a lot of time. And, um, you know, so I just think of those things. I think of, you know, just um, part of the upbringing that I've lived in and the culture that I lived in. Uh, there was a, a imprisonment, you know, for, for different things. And there was, um, you know, poverty in, in, in different ways. Um, there was... Uh, addictions there was abuse and all kinds of abuse different types of abuses that have been in in, in my culture and my family and i just see that it was god's grace again because he 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 lived the life to be tempted as we were and yet he didn't succumb to it and then he died and rose again 
by that same power, he came and grabbed me and saved me from a life of destruction and a life where I would be bound to my sin to continue in it without any choice. And also be separate from him forever because the wage of sin is death, right? And in other words, I would have no forgiveness. But by his grace, he got a hold of me. He came into my heart and my mind and caused me to say, is there really a God? Does he really exist? Did he really resurrect? So as, as I, but I look back at my life and I see that, you know, there was paths that, that I could have stayed in my sin and not cared about where I was going or, or what was happening in my life. And, but by God's grace, he pulled me out. Um, and so I, I just see that that's where it gives us hope for us in this life, not to continue in our sin. Um, so Romans 8, 2 says it this way, For in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of life, set us free from the law of sin. What's the law of sin? The law, meaning the description of what sin does and will do, is what I was talking about. It will cause you to hurt others, hurt yourself, be separate from others, be separate from God. And then it'll cause you to do more and more and more because it's never quenched. That law that was working to destroy you, to destroy me, to destroy society is still at work. But the power that breaks that is that Jesus never sinned and that he rose, rose from the dead. Now that spirit it says here, for in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, that's that spirit, set us free from the law of sin and death. That's why we can say we can turn from our sins. We can stop sinning. And that doesn't mean all sin and never sin. No, we're still going to sin from now until the day that we die. But we don't have to. And that we're actually free not to. For the very first time, I was free not to sin. And I remember that experience. I remember having these desires not to sin anymore. It wasn't okay to just go sleep with my girlfriend anymore. It wasn't okay for me to just, you know, do all kinds of stuff, all the above. It wasn't like my heart began to feel the weight of my sin for the very first time. And then the desires that I had for sin started to dissipate. Now, that doesn't mean they go away forever. Like, we continually battle these desires. But for us to believe that we don't have any other choice than to sin is a lie. Because right here in Romans it says, For the spirit, for the law of the spirit of life set you free. That means you're free. We're, we're no longer enslaved to sin, but the law of sin, from the law of sin and death. And so we're free. We're free to live and obey Christ now. And we're free from having... Uh, for that quench, um, that unquenchable desire to have to sin more and more and more that never satisfies us, we're actually free from that. We can be satisfied in Christ. As in fact, we are satisfied. The Bible says we're complete in Christ. Until that point, we were missing Christ, which is the completion of who we are as a person. Because we actually are who we are in Christ. We're made in the image of God. That image was distorted by sin, and Jesus restored that image to now being complete in Christ. 
So whatever sin it is that you've done, whatever sin that, that you will do, I want you to know that you're forgiven. I want you to know that Jesus didn't sin in that way, so therefore you could walk away from that sin. I want you to know that, that Jesus uh, has paid the price for that sin, which was death. He endured the beating so you wouldn't have to be beat. He endured the pain and suffering so you wouldn't have to pay for that pain and suffering of that sin anymore. You can be free. What does that do? First of all, it makes us accountable. It makes us accountable for what we do, that it does affect people. It does affect ourselves. It does affect God. That's the first thing. But it doesn't leave us just guilty and stuck in our sin, but actually gives us the power to be free from that, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way out of sin. Jesus Christ is the power to leave our sin. Jesus Christ is our hope and our reason to leave our sin. Jesus Christ is better than any sin. Jesus Christ is more satisfying than any sin. I don't care what kind of sin it is. What your mind can imagine as the ultimate is only, is not even a drop compared to Jesus. He is the ultimate. So it gives us hope. It gives hope for this life as we live here. It gives hope to restore, to, to bring healing, to bring healing in, in, in relationships with others, to bring healing in our community, to bring healing in, in Brentwood and Jacksonville, to bring healing in America, to bring healing in this world. Jesus died to set us free and broke the power of sin, so this world would no longer have to sin. How, do they, how does that happen? By his grace. Ephesians says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and when we were dead, Christ died for us. When we were yet sinners. He comes in, he gives us a new heart and new desires, because he conquered, because he has the right to. And now we stand innocent while he was declared guilty. He resurrects us on the third day to say, I defeated your worst enemy, the power of sin and the power of death. So therefore now we have hope. We have hope to be able to live a new life in Christ. That's what resurrection is all about. And every day, brothers and sisters, we wake up every morning with the living God inside of us, the full power that raised Christ from the dead, and they defeated the power of, of temptation is living inside of us every day. So therefore, we can deny ourselves. Therefore, we could um, be fulfilled and complete in him by, by faith, knowing that we already are, knowing that we're already new in Christ, knowing that we already loved by God. So therefore, we can walk in that every day, remind ourselves of that, remind others of that as well. How does that help us? How does that help going to work every day, knowing that your work will not satisfy you, knowing that whatever struggles and trials that you have at work and that are there ahead of you have already been defeated by Christ and that he's with you and that whether you perform at your best or not, that Christ says you're good enough. So therefore go perform at your best because you're free. You're already accepted. You're not doing it. You're not, you're not doing it to be accepted because you're already accepted, right? When you face that situation with one of your children and it's difficult, maybe they're a teenager and they're going through a lot, knowing that he's their father too and that he's going to use this difficult situation to draw you close to him 
and to ultimately work out his good in their life. It doesn't look like that now, but as you draw close to Christ, knowing that he's already has this in his hand, that he already has conquered their enemy, which is uh, Satan, which is sin, which is death, which is temptation. Even though there may be a lot of sin in their life right now, maybe they may be entrapped by things. You pray to a God that's already defeated that. You know that you can run to him because guess what? Your identity's not caught up in being the best parent and your kid's doing everything you want them to do. But that your identity is in Christ and that he walked this walk and lived perfectly as the perfect parent that you should have been. But yet, you have his resume. So we walk already accepted, already loved, already forgiven. If we're already forgiven for everything that we've ever done and will do, and what keeps us from him? What keeps us from opening our heart and opening our mind and saying, God, I want you in my life. I want to live for you. You're the only thing that can quench this evil desire for sin in my life. I don't know. To me, that sounds like amazing news. And so I invite you today on the resurrection day, this Easter, to open your hearts, to cry out to God and say, save me. I believe that you rose on the third day. I believe that there's life after death. I believe you defeated every single one of my temptations, every single one of my sins, and that I could walk free with you, even if it's only freedom for 15 minutes, even if it's only freedom for half a day, even if it's only freedom for one day. And then as God builds on that and builds on that, and you watch him work in your life and you give him all the credit and all the glory, you lean on him and rest on him and float in the love that he has for you, Right? This is not about doing. This is not about um, or withdrawing. This is about being with Jesus, about being in this place where it's you and him. And the more that we are allowing ourselves to be with him, which that's what he wants. That's why he died. So there'd be nothing that separates us. It's like going to a friend or a family member, a parent, and, and you just want to be with them. You just love being around them. Maybe a grandparent, whoever it is. You just feel loved and accepted. You just want to hang out with them. And you know that when you hang out with them, you're just better for it. Maybe they stir you towards Christ. Maybe they just show you this unconditional uh, acceptance and love. And you just want to just, you, you have more confidence in knowing that you can face whatever's going on in your life. That's exactly how it is with Jesus, but even more. He's always there for you to hang out with. And that's what he wants. He did this all to resurrect and to defeat our enemies so we can hang out with him. Happy Resurrection Day today, church. I hope this encouraged you. Um, if you've never heard this message like this before, you know, um, I pray that you would open your heart and your mind to know. Don't We do have, you know, evidence, you know, that's in the Bible and outside the Bible that supports the fact that Jesus did resurrect, resurrect from the dead. But the most important evidence is the work that he's doing in your heart. If he's speaking to you right now, if he's calling you, is he making you convicted of your sins? If you feel bad for your sins, that means it's him. Because anyone that feels bad for the sins can only feel bad because Jesus allows them to feel it. But even though you feel bad for your sins, he wants to take away what you feel bad and give you forgiveness so you no longer have to feel bad for your sins. And that you're forgiven. Sure, you're not going to feel good when you sin. I understand that. I'm not saying becoming someone that just doesn't care that they sin. I'm talking about you actually receiving the forgiveness him lifting the weight of the guilt and the shame that we've carried from things that people have done to us or things that we have done that we wouldn't want anybody to know. He came to set us free from that.
I pray that God will set you free even now. Let me pray. Father, I pray for all those that are listening today. That this resurrection day is not just about uh, you know dressing up and looking nice and having good dinners, but that we realize, God, that you rose from the dead and that you defeated all of our enemies and that we have so much hope for this life we're living here on this earth and we have hope for the life after. I pray that we go and invite all our friends and all our family to you, the resurrected Christ. You live and you're resurrected and you're risen, God, and you're risen indeed. And I thank you for that. I thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for sending your son, Father, to die for us, to pay the price for our sins. I thank you for that. And I thank you that this isn't over, but this is just the beginning. In Jesus' name. May you bless all those that are listening today, God. May they be filled with your spirit and may you have them walk in newness of life, first by being forgiven and set free from all the guilt and the shame that holds us down. And we can feel the pain of our sin and walk forward and walk away from our sin that we no longer have to sin, but we could actually live free of sin in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you, church.